Well, today we celebrate the best news the world has ever received. Jesus is risen. He died on a cross, but without the resurrection, our faith would be meaningless. And that's the good news that we celebrate. Jesus rose from the grave, and we are staking everything on this event, aren't we? So what we proclaim as Christians is that were it not for the grave, we would all be fools to gather here. The empty grave that Jesus uh, raised from. Because after Jesus was crucified, there were no believers. There were no Christians at that point. No one had put their faith in him. In fact, many of those early disciples that traveled with him, they went back to their old life. We read in Luke 24 about the road to Emmaus. They're fishermen that are walking back to their old trade. In John 21, they're back to fishing when Jesus greets them. When Jesus died, it all ended because belief in Jesus as Lord was contingent on the resurrection. At that moment, it seemed as if the story was over. No one is uh, standing outside the tomb, for instance, with a countdown clock waiting for the third day to commence that morning, right? What we do find are the most faithful ones or the women who show up to the tomb, but not expecting an empty tomb. They're expecting a body that they can embalm with the burial spices that they have. Nobody that morning expected no body. Nobody. Everyone's showing up who's showing up expecting to just go on because no one shows up to a funeral expecting a resurrection. The church did not begin because of teachings that Jesus taught. The church did not begin because uh, of, of the miracles that he did. The church began because he was resurrected and there was a story to tell. And there were witnesses to that event who staked their lives on the claims that the world changed that very moment. Christianity doesn't stand or fall on a book. Although we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, it stands and falls on an event. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened, and it's why we gather today. Today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the implications of that event, about what that changed in our world and what it continues to change in our lives today. There is hope because we serve a risen Lord. Amen? Let's pray as we begin our our time this morning in the Word. Oh God, we, uh, we thank you for that morning thousands of years ago when people came expecting a, a body in the tomb, God, or a stone that was covering it, but instead what they found was no body. God, we're grateful for what that means for us, for the hope that we have because of Jesus and his life and his message, but especially for his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is the deposit of faith that we pass on as an event that occurred, and we trust this morning, even against our doubts, even against those moments in our lives where we wonder, is this just a story? God, this morning we come and gather as saints as that we've been doing for centuries now as Christians to proclaim this event, and we believe that it has changed everything. God, convince us of that again this morning. And I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And all who agreed said, Amen. Well, nearly a decade of parenting, I've come to discover a frustrating truth, and it's this. As a parent, I'm not nearly as in control as I think I am. This realization dawned on me early on, as those with young children, you get this, as those who are teachers this morning, our worship, uh, those who are serving in worship ministry, you certainly get that this morning with your kids. It's, there's this realization that emerges that we're not nearly as in control. See, as a kid, I thought my parents were in control. 
And it was that illusion that held the, the house in order, right? That kept it from going into chaos. I didn't realize the kind of control I had as a young child. But as I've become a parent, I have realized this. The first moment that happens is, well, there's probably lots of moments along the way, but one moment I remember was when my son Maddox was, was just an infant, and, and every time we had placed him on a blanket and went to go do something, he was always there when we returned. But there's that first moment where you return and he's not there, or he rolled over, right? And you begin to realize this control of laying a baby where that baby is isn't going to always stay that way forever. Maybe you remember the first laugh you got from your child. I certainly remember that with Maddox. This is this exciting moment. I think we were at a restaurant at the time, and I did something, made a silly face, and all of a sudden he started laughing. And of course, when that happens for the first time, you try to repeat the action, and it never really works, right? But eventually, they kind of pick up on something. They'll start laughing kind of over and over again. And I remember the faces I would make, the silliness I would do. I thought, isn't this cool? This is like my little... My little puppet, right? I mean, he just, he he laughs on command. And then I kind of thought about the moment I realized, wait a minute, dad's the one who looks like the fool. He's the one pulling the strings, right? He can get me to do whatever he wants because he knows I love that sound of laughter. It's the kids who are more control in many ways than the parents. And it wasn't much longer before I realized how little control I have. It just keeps going and going, right? Some moment uh, they roll over and then at the next moment they're crawling and the next moment they're They're walking, and the next moment, they're hiding in a department store, and you can't find them. How many of you know what I'm talking about? We've all been in that moment where we realize we're not as much in control as we thought we were. Uh, So what do we do, right? We put up a a child-proof gate, right? We think we can contain that child in the box, and we put that that gate up, and, and everything looks good, but then they figure out a way out of the gate, and then the crib moment happens, which is an amazing moment, right? I wish I had a video of that first time. You put them in the crib and every morning they wake up and they're always, they come out of the crib when you pull them out of the crib. But one morning they climb out on their own. And then there's another morning where, you know, you've got the, you've got the child proof lock on the door, right? How in the world can they find their way out of that? You've contained that child, but eventually they figured that out too. It's pretty remarkable what these kids are able to do. We like to think we're in control of a lot of things, but really we just have the illusion that we're in control in our lives, not just with our kids but in life overall. And then it gets beyond the crib and it becomes more serious. Sometimes you wait and your daughter was in a car wreck and you get the call and you wish you could have been there in the moment and you feel so out of control, depending on others to care for what you can't. Or you get that call from the insurance company that the settlement that you would have expected isn't going to come back in and you wonder how are we going to work this out? Or or even worse, you get that call from the doctor who says you're going to want to come in so we can sit down and share the news with you. Life is a series of events that removes this illusion that we're in control of our lives. In fact, it's really true. We don't lose control. We just lose the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. Because really, none of us are in control. And so often in our practice of religion, religion, if you think about the history of religions over the years, have been an attempt to really do the same thing, right? trying to gather some kind of control over what seems so uncontrollable in the lives of people. Back in the day, not 20th century, I'm talking thousands of years ago, people began to realize that we depend on things to live. We depend on the sun to shine because the plants tend to grow. We depend on water to come. And so what they realized was maybe there are some unseen forces beyond the world that we can touch and we can taste that are in charge of the grass growing and the cattle living and fertility happening so children can work with us. The history of religion 
begins with humans who came to the realization that their survival depends on someone higher and larger than themselves. And the belief arose that these forces are either on your side or they're not on your side. And it was our job as humans to figure out how to appease those gods. Often we saw them as angry gods, angry gods that didn't really like humans all that much. And so religion became this very anxious exercise of trying to keep the gods on our side, of trying to ensure that all that we need is provided for by these unseen forces. And so the answer was always to sacrifice more, right? You start and you get a a, a harvest one year and you take a part of that harvest and you sacrifice it as appeasing the God's sacrifice. And it works for a while, but some year there's still a famine. And so what do you do? You sacrifice more. You find that, that calf and you kill the calf as a sacrifice. This is the way religion kind of worked over the years. And more and more, it would be a, it would be a goat and then it would be a cow. And then it would be, it'd be two cows. And you just keep doing more and more hoping that maybe these gods will provide what's needed, but it never seemed to work out. And so eventually some religions got to the point where they would sacrifice children. That was the greatest sacrifice that could be given. And that's what we were willing to do was more and more in order to have enough. That sounds archaic. It sounds primitive, doesn't it? It sounds like something that happened thousands of years ago. But in a way, some of us grew up in a kind of religion that sounded a little like that, didn't it? If you could just do more, then you can appease that angry God. If you could just check off this box, if you could say these prayers, if you could have kids that would do just the right thing, then maybe God would be pleased. Does this sound familiar at all? And all of this sounds like maybe there are forces beyond us that are in control, but really what we're trying to do when we talk about this kind of religion is we're trying to gain control over our lives. We're trying to get a picture of the gods that are beyond us, that maybe if we could just control things and we can appease them, then, then things will be back where they should be. If we could just have the right sacrifice, or we could say the right incantation, some religions would say, then maybe just maybe these gods would lay off our back and we could get them on our team. We could just say the right prayer in the right way then God would be forced to do what we think is best in running the world. For some of us, prayer has become like this. Like prayer is like this, this magic act that we, we gather and we pull all the right words together and we think that, well, if we do this, then God is forced to follow our agenda and all that we need to do. And I, I got to be honest, that's how I grew up viewing prayer, right? If I can just get the right words and I can mean it, and I can be a righteous person, then God promises to answer these prayers and will come through. Religion is often a way trying to find in the midst of a world that's out of control a way to control what we can't seem to get under control otherwise. Earlier I talked about parenting as this realization that life is never in control. And as I think about my relationship with God over the years, it's, it's been a similar journey. Because every time I try to grab a box and I try to put God inside of that box, I don't know about you, it's been really hard to ever contain him very well, right? Every time I have expectations, he seems to jump outside of of those expectations. I was handed a view of God that was really like a box. It was like, hey, here's a picture of who God is. I was told the stories of Daniel and God helping them escape the the lions. And I was told stories about Abraham and Moses and the Red Sea crossing. And and all of these were like a, a container for the picture of who this God was that I was to serve. And I'm grateful for all of those pictures because they gave me a way to kind of get my hands around this picture of a God who's mysterious, who's above all of us. But every time I put him in a box, it seemed like he would always break out of that box. And if you're a Christian, you have beliefs about what God does and what God does not do. And as we pass off this story to our kids, we we do the same. We do our best to pass on a picture of faith. But the problem is every time that we, we paint a picture of who God is, we paint a metaphor for who he is, 
it's only a partial picture of the true reality, right? Like, like for instance, God is king. That is absolutely true. We have scriptures that point to the fact that God is king, but, but he's, he's more than just a king, isn't he? There's all kinds of metaphors painted in scripture. God's also a, a shepherd. God's like a, a, God's a father. That's how Jesus prays to God in the, in the Lord's prayer is our father who's in heaven. God is like a mother hen who cares for her chicks. God is love. God is holy. God is all of these things, but none of these metaphors or pictures can fully explain a God who is beyond description. They fall short of describing this God who is ineffable, who is, who's never been touched by human hands. We've never seen his face. We've all had that experience before, right? Some incredible experience that you wanted to tell your friends about. Maybe you took pictures while you were on that trip and that vacation, or you tasted that cheesecake. And what's the language that we have for that? That cheesecake was divine. It was heavenly, right? It's like we're reaching for words from the clouds to try to describe an experience. Or maybe you've been to that conference and you try to bring that idea back to your work and no one else was there and they can never quite, and you can never fully with your words explain what the experience was like. Try describing love and why you love your spouse or your significant other with like descriptive words of science, right? I mean, it didn't work, right? You can't say, well, I love her. I love my wife because she's five foot six and because she likes uh, this kind of food. And because I, it's like trying to draw up emotion is a really hard thing to do with our words. In fact, sometimes language cheapens the experience that we've had. Sometimes all you really can say is, well, I guess you had to be there. And that's really frustrating, but that's how it is with our experience of God as well. Scripture has all of these metaphors and pictures and stories of how God's acted in the past. And we, we take those and we say, well, yeah, I know God is love. And, and we put that down, but then God jumps out of that box and even expands it even further. All of these metaphors paint a picture. And all these impoverished attempts at using language to describe can never fully get at this God who was above all description. See, we try to put God in a box. But if you've noticed, God doesn't play all that well in the boxes that we create for him. And in particular, Jesus didn't play all that well in the boxes that were created for him. You Think back to the stories in the gospels, right? The religious leaders had a hard time believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And there were all kinds of reasons for that because they knew that God was holy and a God who's holy can't hang out with sinners and tax collectors. So when Jesus throws parties and he goes to parties and he finds out that these people are are sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees are going, we know he's not the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't do something like this. Or think to the times when Jesus, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this, right? I mean, when he would heal people on the Sabbath. If someone heals someone in front of me, I would think I'm going to believe there's something divine about this person. But the, the Pharisees had a really hard time believing that because he would heal on the Sabbath. The Sabbath said you should do no work. So surely this couldn't be the Messiah because... He wasn't fitting in the box as they understood God to fit in. Jesus hung out with sinners. He healed people at the wrong moments. He always seemed to show up at the wrong parties. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. This is part of the reason that Jesus ends up on the cross. is because he's a threat to the religious systems, the religious boxes that had been created to describe exactly who God is. And so we paint these pictures and we put these boxes and God always sends the Break out of them. Isn't it interesting as religious people? We, we draw on our boxes for a lot of comfort. We draw on our pictures of God to, to receive a lot of comfort. And, and religious systems tend to kind of draw lines between those who are insiders and outsiders, you know? 
And what's interesting about that is I've never known anyone who's been a part of a religious system who draws lines on those who are inside and outside, and they draw that line in a way that they're on the outside of the line, which seems a little suspicious to me, right? seems like we're always the insiders. We're always the ones who are accepted, and we're always deciding that others don't quite add up. And I wonder today that if Jesus were to show up, would he actually seem like he was inside the line, or would we draw him even outside of the line? Which brings me to the reason we are all here this morning. The story of the crucifixion, but ultimately the resurrection in Matthew is where I want to read from this morning. If you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, feel free to open there uh, or scroll there. Matthew chapter 27 is where I want to read from right now. This is the story of the crucifixion. We'll get to the resurrection in a moment. But I want you to pay close attention to what happens physically in the world around Jesus when he dies. Right? It's not just a, a guy who dies on a cross. There's other things that are going on, and it's pretty remarkable what happens. So listen to this. This is uh, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. This is not your normal death picture. A lot of crucifixions had happened in the Roman you know, Roman Empire at this time. There were others on the cross with Jesus. But in this moment, darkness covers the earth for three hours. Last time I can remember in Scripture, there's probably other times. I think back to the plague of darkness, right? That's a picture where God does that. But this is a remarkable moment. Something's happening in the cosmic world as Jesus dies on the cross. But it's not only that. There are holy people that are rising up from the tombs this moment. Imagine the scene, right? You're there, you see Jesus crucified, and then all of a sudden, Uncle Joe shows up, right? Rising out of the grave. But not only that, perhaps the most remarkable part of this is a description of the curtain in the temple. It's torn in two from top to bottom. I think that detail is pretty significant, from top to bottom. This is God who's tearing this curtain, not humans. It's interesting, the the historian Josephus tells us that the curtain of the temple was 60 feet tall, six stories tall, and it's four inches thick. This is a divine moment, and it's a divine moment that's chosen on purpose. The crucifixion is changing the world in new ways, and maybe we need to think a little bit about what it's changing. Why is that significant about the curtain that's being torn in two? If you think back to the story of Israel going back, the people of God have always wanted God to be with them. And in the tabernacle time in the wilderness, they had a, a structure, right? They had this place called the tabernacle. There was a tent that they carried around with them that God would stay within. In fact, he would stay not just in the tabernacle, but in the Holy of Holies. And only once a year would the people of God, only one person, the high priest, would go into that Holy of Holies. And it was on the Day of Atonement. There was a lot of fear around this. He actually wore bells, and in case the bells stopped moving, you knew that he was dead because he'd done something wrong. Like, that's how serious this was. And, and so this high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. It was great because God was with them, right? But, but he was still separated from them because there was this 
curtain in the tabernacle that separated God from the people, except for that one time every year. And the, the high priest would go in, would make atonement for the sins of all the people. It was a big day in Israel's history. But as they enter into their uh, promised land time and God gives them a kingdom, all of a sudden they're in Jerusalem and they build a new structure for God. They've got a temple that they build for God. And this temple has a similar structure. There's concentric circles that you can get depending on who you are in the center of that. The, the center is the Holy of Holies. There's a structure there in the temple where God is in the middle of it all. And the Holy of Holies is this place like in the tabernacle where once a year the high priest would enter in and would make atonement for all the people. But outside of that concentric circle, you had the, the court where basically the priests and the Jewish men could go into. There was a certain group that could gather close, but not all the way in to that space. And there was another concentric circle outside of that where the, the Jewish women could gather. Not quite as close as the Jewish men, but they were allowed in that space. And then outside of that was the place where the court of the Gentiles was. The court of the Gentiles was the place where all that happens when Jesus clears the temple, right? All the selling that's going on. What God's upset about most is the people trying to come close to God that are far away are being distracted in the place they're closest able to come to God. So God, Jesus does something about it. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, he says, not a den of robbers. And in the midst of this scene, with all these boxes that have been created, what happens in the middle of this picture? When Jesus is crucified, that curtain that separated God from the rest of his people gets torn in two. It's symbolic of some things, isn't it? That now access is open to those who, who believe in Jesus as Lord. When Jesus dies, the system changes in a moment. God changes to choose the way he relates to his people. There will be no more blood sacrifice because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. There will be no more mediators or priests who go to God on our behalf. Now, through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, God lives within us after Pentecost. An amazing picture, right? Not, not, not priests who go and do that. That's what we believe, the priesthood of all believers. That We don't just have some people who have access to God. No, all of us now have access to God because of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And because of this, we are no longer outsiders. We no longer wait outside in courts where we're not allowed close to God. We are welcomed right into the house of God. And it will take the church centuries to finally live up to these ideals. In fact, in some ways, we're still trying to live up to these ideals. Do you remember the picture as Saul is persecuting the church, who becomes the Apostle Paul? And Saul's on the road, and it takes Jesus showing up on that road to say, Paul, Saul, you put God in a box and God's so much bigger than the box you designed for him. These Gentiles who are proclaiming Jesus as Lord, they're actually telling the true story. So I'm going to break out of that box again, Saul. You've got to see it bigger. And I think about Peter, right? Peter was this loud mouth who seemed to never get it right around Jesus. And, and Peter, you know, in Acts chapter 10, he's on this, on this roof and he has this vision. And, 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 and there's these unclean animals that are let down on a sheet. And, and he says, God, I can't eat those. You know that it's unclean. And God's like, no, bacon's good now, which we can all say amen, right? Like, no, it's good. Like, you can eat all that. And not only that, like, my spirit's being poured out on the Gentiles as well. You've created a box, Peter, and I always break outside of the boxes that you create for me. Over and over again, God is breaking out of these boxes, and the curtain is just one more thing. See, the crucifixion is this fascinating moment in world history. That at the very moment that God was destroying the curtain that kept us separate from God, the religious and political authorities, I've run out of boxes, sorry. The religious and political authorities think they've put God in the final box. You realize that, right? I mean, the disciples think that the story's finished. 
And, and if you think about the political and religious authorities, they think they've got Jesus done away with. They've done their task. Now the revolutionary's gone, not to be disturbing things again. Because death is the final box, and you don't break out of that. So they put this box, and they put God in the middle of it, and they say, see, it's over with. And what's amazing is Satan thinks he's done it too. The evil one thinks he beat God in this moment. Because the Messiah, the Son of God, is now in the grave. He's in the final box, and you don't break out of that box. Let's read in chapter 28 a story about death maybe not being as final as we thought it was. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. We know anything. We know that the ultimate box that you don't break out of is death, right? I mean, death is the last word. I don't go to funerals and start trying to raise people from the dead because we know how this works. Death is the final word. But when God enters into the world in Jesus, you know what he says? He says, even death is not a big enough box for what I want to do. Even that curtain is torn down. The box you think they could define him and hold him more than any other is the very thing that I'm going to break out of. And you know what? Paul says later on, he says, where death is your sting, where, oh, death is your victory. Even that I can defeat for my purposes. Because we serve a God who will not fit in any box, even a coffin or a tomb. Praise God for that. But I know there are some of you today who struggle to believe this story. I want you to know, just like Thomas, you're welcome with us. In fact, there are people, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, I think this is remarkable, who are there, they see Jesus give the Great Commission. So all authority has been given to me. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And right before that scene, Jesus has resurrected Jesus, has nail marks in his hands there. It says that they worshiped him, but some doubted. Boy, that is a help to me in the midst of the times where I struggle with this story and struggle to believe it. I want you to know with all your doubt, you're welcome here today. So maybe you're in a Friday right now. And maybe you're wondering, you know, the box that has been put before me is just too big for God to break through. Or maybe it feels like Saturday. The death has happened. The relationship's been broken. The job's been let go from. Whatever it may be that you're facing right now, maybe it's a diagnosis that you've received. The box just seems too big, doesn't it? And on Saturday, those disciples think the box is too big still. But on Sunday morning, they wake up, and what they discover is that the curtain was not the only thing that would be torn in two. Even the grave would be opened, and Jesus would be let out. So I want to leave you with that hope this morning. No matter the picture of God you may have been given that may be too small for who he is, whether it's the diagnosis or whether it's the relationship that's broken, no matter it is what it is that may cause you to lose hope, we serve a God who does the unthinkable and breaks out of the most difficult boxes you can imagine. So I want to leave you with that hope today. The God who, who raised Jesus from the dead, for those who are in him, 
lives inside of us. Think about that kind of power living inside of us. So the story of, 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 of Pentecost is, right? It's an amazing scene where the Holy Spirit comes down and the church is launched and 3,000 are baptized and begin this movement called the church. An amazing thing. So, but maybe you're on one of those Saturday moments. The hard thing about Saturday is this. When you've had the death, but the resurrection isn't there yet, sometimes you begin to wonder, is this a one-day story? Is this just a story of bad news? Or is this going to be a third-day story? If you think about Scripture over and over again, it's amazing how many stories have three-day stories. Think about Jonah and the whale, right? It's a three-day story. I think about Jesus. He's talking about, hey, in three days, I'll tear down this temple, right? Raise it, raise it up again. Three-day stories are good news. The problem is we live in, a, in Saturday. We live in the second day, don't we? So we have to have trust that the story is not complete, that the chapters that have been written are not the final chapters that will be written. And that's why we gather today. We gather today on Easter Sunday to be reminded that death is not the end. The broken relationships are not the end. That even that diagnosis is not the end because for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we'll be raised a new life. The story will have another chapter, no matter how deep and dark it is. My prayer today is that you would leave with that kind of hope. A belief that this event actually happened and a belief that this event changes every box we try to contain our lives. And yeah, our kids break out of our gates and Jesus breaks out of the tomb. And so, yeah, you may not be in control, but I know the God who is in control. I want to close this morning with prayer. And uh, if there's any desire to respond this morning, I want to let you know there are prayer partners in the back that would love to receive you after our service time and would love to pray with you. would love to talk with you about whatever decision you may want to make for Jesus. There's still time uh, to celebrate a baptism. But I'm going to pray and then close this out today. God, we, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for resurrection. I thank you that Friday is not the end of the story, but Sunday is a story that is written time and time again in your scriptures. You continue to do the impossible in our lives. And we trust that in our lives, sometimes it doesn't work out the way we want it to. And sometimes our prayers seem to fall on deaf ears. But our trust is that you hear us and that you're moving things in some way for the good of all who believe in you and are called according to your purpose. So God, this morning, would you fill us with hope once again? Would you fill us with a sense that you're larger than any box that's been created for you? Would you help us to live resurrected lives as we share this good news with the world? We pray this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.